University of New England is embarking on a bold new mission to transform the university's decommissioned boiler house into a purpose-built discovery space. Here, on Curiosity Built the Boiler House, we'll follow the transformation of this 1950s industrial building into a regional science-themed play space. Along the way, we'll also chat with leading experts in education, play-space design, and all things STEAM about what makes for an incredible discovery space experience. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and we're finishing off this season of Curiosity Built the Boiler House, speaking with the two people who kick-started this whole project in the first place. The founder of the Abbott Foundation, Mr. Christopher Abbott, and the program leader of UNE Discovery, Dr. Kirsty Abbott. There's no relation there, just so you know. Just a happy coincidence. Well, it was actually an idea that was brought to UNE by Chris Abbott. But it's funny because... You know, the moment for me that I was brought on, to, on board um, was, oh, there's a guy called Chris Abbott and he's got these ideas. And I'm like, hang on a second, Chris who? I was like, oh, my God, we've got the same surnames. Maybe we're destined to work together. <laughs> Through the Abbott Foundation, Christopher Abbott aims to improve the lives of children across Australia by supporting a range of early childhood education and development initiatives. I, I met a man called Max Bennett who was um, uh, a professor of... Um, neurology, I guess, at Sydney University. And uh, he told me about a child's brain. And I remember him saying that um, when a child is four years old, he, she, is making more neuronal connections than any other time in life. So it builds up from, from the age of one month, two months, six months. It gets to a maximum of four or five. And a child at that age is making a million synaptic connections per second. And after that, it tails off. And by the time you get to my age, you're probably only making one or two (laughs) connections a second. (laughs) And um, so that shows that when a child is four or five, or three, four, five, six, it's got a potential to learn, and it wants to learn. It, It instinctively wants to learn. I don't know that it necessarily wants to be taught, but it wants to learn. And the idea of a discovery space is to let the child do that, to let it learn of its own accord, doing things that it wants to do, playing with other kids. Inspired by children's discovery museums in the USA, Chris saw a need to establish one here in Australia. He was eventually successful when he provided the seed funding for the development of the immensely successful Early Start Discovery Space at the University of Wollongong. I asked Chris where the idea for the Discovery Space came from and how he managed to help make it a reality. I used to drive down the south coast of New South Wales pretty well every weekend and there were big areas of green uh, pasture. And I used to say to myself, that would be nice for a park for for kids. And um, then I never did anything about it for year after year after year. Then I rang up a chap called um, Thomas Barlow who in those days worked for um, the Minister for Education. And he said, go and talk to Doreen Clark. Doreen Clark had been studying children's discovery museums in America, and she was dead keen on starting one in Australia, but she didn't have the funding. She was very close with a man called Adam Selinger, um, who had quite a lot of experience in children's play areas. And... uh, Adam and I went to America, um, both separately and together, and um, he went to a number of uh, children's discovery museums, particularly Boston and Chicago, 
And I went to a number, uh, particularly uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, uh, and Minneapolis. Um, and um, we went to a big convention of Children's Discovery Museums and became quite enthusiastic. And uh, so I said, well, I think I ought to do something. And I started off at Sydney University, um, but it didn't work. And then I went down to Wollongong. Um, I, I probably matured my thinking a bit more by then. And we met with the Vice-Chancellor in, I'd say, 2008, probably. And we clicked immediately. And as a result of that, I wrote a letter to the Vice-Chancellor saying, I put up so much money, if you put up so much money, let's get on with it. And from then on, it clicked. Um, they, they, they were very clever. They got money from the federal government in substantial amounts. And so the discovery space which we built was much bigger than I ever anticipated. And it's been successful. I think we've had 600,000 visitors, or probably more by now. The last number I heard was 600,000 visitors, which is... A, Considering that the Illawarra is only 400,000 people, that's quite a lot. But what happens is that the average kid goes there six times and stays there for three hours every time. So that's quite a, it's quite a statement, isn't it, that A, that they want to go back six times, and B, that they want to stay three hours. Following the success of the Early Start Discovery Space, Chris was keen to find more opportunities to establish similar early childhood discovery spaces in regional Australia. He came to the University of New England to discuss this possibility with the Vice-Chancellor at the time, Professor Annabel Duncan. While there, he was also introduced to Dr. Kirsty Abbott, a research scientist and science communicator. I spoke with Kirsty about Chris's visit to the university and how the Boiler House came to be the site for this new venture. So Chris brought the idea to regional New South Wales through uh, Annabelle Duncan, our previous VC, and I was brought on board because of my experience and expertise in science communication, science education and engagement, uh, and asked while I was standing in a zoology um, basement storeroom looking for an insect net (laughs) um, if I'd like to quote, see what could come of this idea, unquote. Sarah, this is a cool story because there's key people as a part of this journey that I met along the way that made the Boiler House happen. Ben Harris was the Deputy Director of Facilities Management and I saw him in the car park that day that I was showing people around and he said, oh, how's it going? You know, how are the spaces? We said, actually, they're just not really appropriate for this big discovery space idea that you know, Chris is thinking about and that Annabelle is keen on. So I don't know, we're looking for a space. And he said, oh, you know, up on the hill, there's a disused industrial boiler house and so many people have thrown around so many ideas for what this could be. It's a pretty inspiring place that won an architectural award the same year as the Opera House. And I don't know, why don't you just show him, you know, what is there to lose? So I said, okay. So I checked in if that was okay, if we had a look at that. And the vice chancellor said, sure, show Chris on the way to the airport. And I like it because we got out of the car and we both looked up, Chris and I both looked up at the boiler house and went, oh my goodness, this is the space. This is the space. With a site chosen and a vision forming in their minds, Kirsty was put in charge of managing the transformation of the boiler house from a remnant of the university's industrial history into a state-of-the-art play space. 
I wasn't too surprised to hear that it's posed some interesting logistical challenges. One of the big challenges for this project has been the building itself. While inspirational, it didn't come without its challenges. It was contaminated to within an inch of its life. It was built uh, during a construction era that used a lot of asbestos, for instance, but other materials that were deemed appropriate and suitable in the era but we now know are contaminants in our environment so an 18 month remediation project was underway to rid the boiler house of asbestos cladding asbestos uh, lagging on pipes getting rid of the all the internals which included mercury and lead paint and pcbs and arsenic and a lot of things like that which were kept contained while the boiler house was disused but in the long-term environmental sustainability sense and stewardship of of the campus as well was a fantastic cleanup effort to actually ensure that the contaminants were removed from from that building and from the entrance to our university with the boiler house site finally remediated and ready for development, I asked both Kirsty and Chris about the next steps for bringing this vision to life and what they hope to see happening with the boiler house in the near future. We're in design phase. It's exciting. It's no longer hand-waving fantasy land. You know, if we have an idea about an experience or a playscape, we're now putting it on paper with architects and designers, talented architects and designers, and it's great. It's great to see a real thing coming to life. So design phase will go until the end of 2021 when construction tender will be put out to the lucky Uh, people who will build it. Building will start in 2022 and we are on track at this point in time for an end of 2023 opening to the public. Well, I'm I'm hoping that we can put enough money together to at least start a, a minimalist discovery space. I think there is the momentum of enthusiasm here and there's a certain amount of money and I think we need to get on with it. Uh, I would love as much as possible for it to have natural materials, wood and stone and um, uh, and things like that. Of course, it's bound to have a lot of concrete because the building's concrete now. And I'm not saying get rid of the concrete because that's uh, something which um, you, ca- you can't avoid. But to the extent possible, I'd like to soften the building with materials which are natural, like various kinds of wood, maybe even textiles, maybe leathers, um, I don't know what else, um, but certainly not plastic. A lot of people looked at the building and they were like, wow, industrial, steampunk, the mechanistic, you know, the cogs, the tinkering, all that sort of Jules Verne style stuff. And But at the same time, we had our mobile program, which had STEAM programs, science, technology, engineering, arts, maths. And we thought, wow, what a great play on words. And we sort of left it at that a little bit. We loved the aesthetic. We loved the play on words with STEAM. Um But the architects have brought a whole new way of looking at it through political and historical eyes. And what did, how did steampunk come about? And why do we perpetuate these sorts of aesthetics or these sorts of ideas in our current cultural landscape? So, yes, we're still exploring steampunk aesthetic, but excitingly, we've got an opportunity to completely redefine that for our current and modern. Uh, our contemporary living, especially looking back to our Indigenous culture and our history of the regional landscape here. It's not Jules Verne. You know, it's not a Victorian era. Um, it's Anawan. 
history. It's Anawan tinkering and science and understanding of the world. So that has been a really, really lovely melding for us and thinking much more deeply about what steampunk means rather than, hey, that's a cool play on words and, and we can have a steampunk building. Of course, a nice building is only one small part of an early childhood discovery space. What's more important is what will be going on inside the building. When the boiler house is completed, its focus will be on encouraging play-based learning. I asked Kirsty about play and its role in education. What is it and why is it important for early childhood development? All kids have play urges that's been documented globally through every culture. And a play urge could be something like jumping off a height. It could be throwing an object towards something else to, you know, to find out what effect it has on it. It could be poking the person next to you to get a reaction. What does that look like? It could be playing with words and urge to uh, affect a situation through language. So yes, all children experience play urges. I think our job as adults is to create what we call play provocations uh, and that might be something that naturally allows a child to experience and play out their urge. So, for instance, I'll give you a good example, actually. A modern thing at the moment is we're going towards natural playscapes in early childhood centres and playgrounds and dry creek beds are a great example of uh, providing multiple play urges and provocations for kids you can play with rocks you can stack them you can walk up a creek if it's got water in it you can pour it you can splash it you can feel it you can watch it all those sorts of things when an example of when we don't provide play those those don't provide for those natural play urges is when we put a rope up around that dry creek bed and say do not enter when we then say do not touch the rope because of course a play urge for a rope is to grab the rope is to pull it is to sit on it is to swing it so I think one of the things we've been really conscious of with this project is working with early childhood educators designers and the architects to allow and provide in design for children to experience play urges with with particular play provocations and in designing it The educational and the design principles behind it are about creating flexible, functional environments that kids and families and people can manipulate in their own way over and over again. It could be a different experience every time. You might play by yourself one time. You might play with two others. You might play with a whole gang of people. Um, You might invite others to do a show or you might sit more intimately I guess with somebody else and solve a problem so play can look like a whole heap of different things. Both Chris and Kirsty are champions for regional Australia. They work tirelessly to support education in regional towns across New South Wales. I asked them both what the boiler house means for Armadale and the broader New England area and why these kinds of initiatives are important for regional Australians. Uh, Neville Rann was Premier of New South Wales many years ago and he was interested why the Hunter Valley area of New South Wales, population about 400,000, why it had uh, very low wealth, low GNP per head and that sort of thing. And he asked uh, um, four of us to go up and investigate. And what we discovered after spending a couple of weeks in the Hunter was that there was no leadership in the Hunter, um, BHP was run from Melbourne, 
Liddell was run from Sydney. The two smelters were run, one from Zurich and the other from Montreal. So all the decisions were made outside the Hunter. And so um, the, 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 it, they weren't developing their own leaders. Now, w what's ironic is that when BHP left Newcastle, a lot of people thought Newcastle would die. It didn't. It thrived. It, it grew its own leaders. And uh, when I went down to Wollongong and began talking to the university about doing a discovery space, that was um, very much on my mind because the Illawarra is an area very much like the Hunter, same, same population, about 400,000, and BHP's gone. And, but it's, but it's, it's thriving. And, um, well, I'm very much in favour of, um, uh, of non-Sydney New South Wales. Um, because I think that Sydney, uh, Sydney gets all the tax revenue and keeps most of it itself, um, and I, I think that uh, the 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 western side of the ranges um, doesn't get looked after at all by the state, and I think Canberra is is just as guilty as Sydney. Can Canberra gets what twenty six of GNP, twenty six percent of our GNP, and gives back around about twenty five. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad game. One of the things that have struck me in this project for the whole five years is that when I talk about this project to people who've visited children's museums overseas, who go to metropolitan galleries, science centres, Questacon, places like that, their eyes light up and to know that something like that could be supported in a regional area does three things for them. It firstly says to them that they're worthy, that they're worthy of these amazing things. You know, we're not just regional people stuck out in the middle of nowhere who are backwards and who can't, you know, who can't do things. They're worthy of those that investment. And that's that's been a really key theme for a lot of people about this project. So, you know, Armadale Secondary College is recently, you know, a $120 million investment in secondary education in Armadale. And, you know, the benefits of that, and the infrastructure that that has brought to the region, again, has made students and staff feel that they're worthy of that amazing investment that we see in metropolitan areas all the time. The design of the boiler house is very much underway, but there are still opportunities for the community to shape what it will eventually become. I asked Kirsty about how the boiler house continues to evolve and how individuals and organisations can contribute to the boiler house into the future. So Chris Abbott was the trigger for this and also um, a large funding trigger. So the Abbott Foundation has contrib will contribute $3.5 million to this initiative, which will be the single largest donation to the university since its inception. The great thing about that is that the state government, the New South Wales state government, came on board uh, with $6.1 million. And we've had many donors, both local in, in fairly small-scale ways, but also state and national contribute to this up to up, you know $250,000. So fundraising is ongoing and it's exciting to be bringing partners on board for that, both corporate, philanthropic um, and government. For several years now, Kirsty Abbott has been the driving force behind the development of the Boiler House Discovery Space, from its initial inception through building remediations to funding and bringing on board the minds that will shape what the Boiler House Discovery Space is set to become. I asked her what this journey's been like and how it feels to have played an integral part in such an ambitious and exciting project. It is a little bit, yeah, that, that nurturing stage of an idea, you know, it's almost like, in fact, 
at the moment, um, my family and I are trying to light fires with a flint and steel. It's a little bit like that. You know, you've got to get the spark. You've got to get that spark and you've got to grow it and you need the tinder. And when that tinder lights and you go, there's a fire, I can make a fire out of this. It's kind of life-changing. You need that to survive. We need that inspiration. And it's um, so that for me is really nice. I, I feel... Yeah, I feel instrumental in creating that spark, lighting the tinder and maybe contributing to the fire that will burn in an old boiler house from here on. It feels really gratifying that something like this, as big and left field at a university in a regional area in an industrial building, has come to life and that we have over $10 million of external funding from the university, you know, outside the university contributed to this people believe in this idea and it's nice it's so nice to hear people on this podcast reiterate the value of places like this of programs like this and also their support for new endeavors we feel really supported by a national community of people who do this in terms of the university the, the broader vision of how how early childhood discovery and play can fit into the University of New England's communities, alumni and staff and students and, and whole community of lifelong learning, I think is really, really nice. I think the Boiler House will be a gateway for lifelong learning at the University of New England forever. And I'm really proud to have been a part of this journey. This podcast is recorded on NI1 Country and has been brought to you by the University of New England. To find out more about the Boiler House Discovery Space, visit uneboilerhouse.org.au. That's it for this season of Curiosity Built the Boiler House. I hope you've enjoyed hearing these stories as much as I've enjoyed sharing them with you. Once again, I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and thank you for joining me here on Curiosity Built the Boiler House. Mm-hmm.